Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. If you thought a sweep of the Yankees, including a walk-off 12th inning home run by Jake Bowers on Sunday was special, while the Rays whipped the Nationals 11 to nothing Monday night. Blake Snell was impressive with seven shutout innings, giving up only one hit. Wilson Ramos, two home runs. Jake Bowers, four hits. Kevin Kiermeyer, a grand slam, which busted the game wide open. The Lightning make qualifying offers to four players, including Cedric Paquette, J.T. Miller, Slater, Cuckoo, and Adam Ernie. What does that mean for the team going forward? USF nearing an athletic director hire. That should be decided by next week. And we've got a treat for you as Rick Stroud, before he left on vacation, spent time with Andy Freed, the play-by-play guy of the Rays. And today we're going to talk about how he got started in baseball and how by age eight he knew he wanted to call games. Before we get into that, though, I want to tell you about a special offer from Audible.com. Sign up now and you get a 30-day free trial membership. That's a $15 value. And as a listener to Sports Day Tampa Bay, you'll get a free audiobook. Just go to audibletrial.com. That's spelled A-U-D-I-B-L-E trial.com slash sports day to take advantage of the deal. Audible is owned by Amazon and gives you access to 180,000 titles to choose from. Plus, you own the books once they've been downloaded. You can even listen to them offline. To get that offer, go to audibletrial.com slash sportsday for a free 30-day trial membership and a free audiobook. So the Rays welcome Dave Martinez back to the TROP on Monday night. Of course, he's the former player who got the first hit in franchise history. Former coach who was the bench coach behind Joe Madden. Did not get the managerial job four years when Kevin Cash was hired. So he comes back to the TROP for the first time. The Rays played a great video tribute to him at the end of the first inning. He seemed pretty touched by it, tapped his heart to the crowd who gave him a nice ovation. And then after that, the Rays weren't very nice to him. Blake Snell, impressive tonight. Maybe his best start of the season, although he said afterwards maybe that start in Seattle was even better. But Blake Snell walked the first two batters and, in his words, was pissed. And then he got it together. Retires the next 18 batters as he goes six no-hit innings to start the game. Ends up giving up a hit in the seventh inning, completes the seventh. So seven shutout innings for Blake Snell. 10-4 10-4 and four on the season now. An impressive start. Should be an all-star. Uh, he's probably, and, and Dave and Andy on the Rays radio broadcast were talking about this uh, tonight, probably one of the best five left-handers maybe in the game, but definitely in the American League at this point. 10-4 um, and four on the season. ERA is uh, two and some change. And at home, it's, it's even better. His home ERA was .86 going into tonight, so obviously seven shutout innings makes that even better. Jake Bowers, a career night, four hits, including the first three hits in a row. His first three at-bats, he got hit, so he actually had four hits in a row going back to the walk-off on Sunday night home run. Wilson Ramos crushed two home runs against his former team and showboated a little bit, but not too bad. But uh, considering it's his former team and how well-liked he was, probably – got away with not getting plunked on that. And Kevin Kiermeyer, who has struggled offensively since coming off the disabled list, a grand slam in the second inning to bust the game wide open to make it 6 nothing at that point. And the Rays never looked back from there. 
Now, the Rays really touched up Gio Gonzalez, the pitcher there, who's really good for them, but has really struggled in his last four starts. He only goes one inning plus seven batters, gives up six earned runs, including five walks. Uh, Not a very good performance for him. Maybe a little tired, or maybe it's just because he's struggled of late. The Nationals didn't get in. They had Sunday night baseball Sunday, so they didn't get into town until about 4.30 with their flight. They got to their hotel about 5.30. Gio Gonzalez actually was going to fly in earlier in the afternoon. That flight got canceled on Sunday. Uh, due to the storms, so he ended up taking the charter and getting in late. So the Nationals maybe a little fatigued. Maybe that was part of it, although Blake Snell was dealing and the race hitters were really on. A day game today at the Trop, 12-10, so all the kids will be out. It'll be a camp day there. Max Scherzer's on the mound for the Nationals. He'll go against Nathan Avaldi as the uh, Rays look for their fifth game in a row and their second sweep in a row in the short two-game series before they have an off-day Wednesday and then welcome the world champion Astros to town for a four-game series over the weekend. But speaking of the Rays, earlier, before Rick Stroud left on vacation last week, he had a chance to talk to Andy Freed about all kinds of things, and and it's actually going to be a three-part interview that we'll play over the next week or so. Today, we're going to talk about how Andy, at age eight, knew that he wanted to be a baseball announcer, that the first baseball game he ever went to, he fell in love, and that was it. That was all he ever wanted to do. And, of course, now he's been the Rays announcer for 14 seasons as he started in the 05 season with Dave Wills. Uh, And you're going to hear over the next few days how he didn't know Dave Wills when they got hired. Actually, they were both hired, and they met at FanFest prior to the season, Um, how good friends they are, how Andy came up through the minors, how he almost got the Angels job and wouldn't have been the Rays announcer. A few years prior to getting hired by the Rays, he thought he had the job. Turns out they went with somebody else, which is Tampa Bay's good fortune, of course. So you're going to hear all that in the next few days. So here was Rick Stroud sitting down with Andy Freed last week. So we're joined by Andy Freed, and Andy, of course, has been doing play-by-play in the color commentary with Dave Wills since 2005 with the Rays, and now a Trenton Thunder Hall of Famer. Congratulations, Andy. That was really kind of a cool deal. I watched this on YouTube, and uh, a big part of your career, right? Well, it, it was, and, you know, I, I don't know how to accept I mean, it's a wonderful compliment. It's, of course, it's a beautiful thing, and, uh, sure. and yet I, I'm kind of uncomfortable accepting uh, compliments. And I mean, it's silly. I, me and, and someone's Hall of Fame, it just, I find it silly but um, from a personal standpoint. But, you know, my, my family was excited about it, and the Thunder were excited about it, and, and I appreciated it immensely. And it was very, very nice to be down there and see the kids that are running that operation now that, that I was at least a tiny part of helping to get off the ground uh, 20, 25 years ago now. So it, I, I'm thrilled that the, that organization is still not only doing well, but really going strong, and um, it, it was a lot of fun. It really was. And that was a, uh, a particularly good part of your career and your life because um, in, in your uh, acceptance speech or whatnot, it was, it was very brief and, and, and humble, but you mentioned that you met your wife Amy there, right, in the press box, opening day, 1996. How'd that happen? Well, I mean, moving to Trenton, I was in A-ball for two years in the uh, Florida State League in Port St. Lucie. I was actually down here in Florida for a couple of years out of college. And right. uh, when I got that job with the Thunder at AA, I mean, it felt like getting a big league job at the time because I went from going to a, a place that, you know, I think we drew 80,000 fans for the entire season, and suddenly you go up there and it was a new hot franchise, and they were packing the joint in the state capital of New Jersey. I mean, it was it was really an exciting time, and they were getting six, 7,000 people a night, and it was like the place to be in, in central New Jersey. And uh, just completely, you know, how life works. I mean, everything is just by chance. And, mm-hmm. you know, I could have not gotten that job and never would have met my wife, or she <laughs> may not have been working. You know, she picked up a job there 
uh, to go around with the mascot. Boomer is the name of the mascot. And it was just a part-time job while she was in college just to you know, help make ends meet. It was a, a new thing to do. It was a cool place to work. And my first game there in 1996, uh, she just happened by with the mascot into our radio booth. And that was the first time I ever saw her. So I, I think about that, and that was what came to mind when I was there the other day, that if I don't get that job or if she doesn't pick up that little part-time gig, uh, then I, she and I never meet, and our kids that we have today aren't here. And I mean, it really reminds you of the, just the randomness of life. I mean, things have worked out so wonderfully well for us. But there we were in our early 20s and just happened to meet at the right place, right time, I guess, like all of us. As you said, uh, four years later, you're married. 18 years later, you have uh, the three children, Sarah, Casey, and Maddie. So it is quite a, uh, quite a story. So that's, a, that's always going to be a big part of your life, obviously. You've kind of, um, and, and I kind of want to, you know, in, in just kind of reading about you, um, you're a lot like all of us, I think, that, that loved baseball, at least, at least me growing up. Um, this was the job you always wanted, right? I mean, I, I don't know if you were that kid that used to call games uh, in your neighborhood as you were playing them or just exactly when did the love of, uh, of calling games or being a broadcaster strike you? Well, when, when I was a kid, I mean, my family was not into sports at all. Uh, I, I mean, I had zero experience with watching or listening to any sort of sport until I was eight. And uh, I can tell you the date. It was August the 9th, 1979 that my mom's brother, my Uncle David, uh, he was into sports, but I didn't know anything about that. And he asked my mom if he could take me and my brother to an Orioles game. And, uh, and she said, sure. But I, I remember that when we were leaving in the driveway, I, that date, that game, and that just that, that date in my life is so powerful. Uh, I, I can remember everything about that day. And I can remember when we left in his car, his, his silver Mercury Cougar with a red interior, that uh, she comes to the window of the car right as we pull out of the driveway, and she goes, you know, you might want to bring a book. You, you might get bored. And she had no idea that I would have any interest in this, and neither did I. I didn't even really know where I was going. You know, who knows what they're doing when they're eight years old. But I, sure. I can remember driving into Memorial Stadium, which is a, a beautiful neighborhood sort of ballpark. You know, there's not many neighborhood ballparks anymore uh, around the country, but most of them, if not all of them, uh, most of them, were a part of neighborhoods all around the country, and we would drive through the tree, you know, the, the tree-lined streets of Waverly, Maryland, and all of a sudden, I remember seeing the lights, and I can remember seeing the the stadium kind of appear almost out of you know the out of the horizon, and it was very interesting for the moment we got there. But when we walked into the ballpark, it was pouring down rain. and the game went into a long rain delay, as I remember, and we walked all around the ballpark. Um, and maybe it's just the aesthetic of the rain coming down, uh, but it really brought out the greenness of the grass, the, the, the richness of the dirt of the field. Um, something about the rain coming down with those gigantic stadium lights, it, seemed, it almost seemed like a giant movie set uh, to me. It was vibrant, and it was alive, and there was so much activity. There was, there was sound, and there was, there was visuals, and you could, it was a unique smell. You know, the, the mix of cigars and hot dogs and all the uh, other things that are unique to an outdoor stadium. And during the rain delay, we walked around inside Memorial Stadium. We got something to eat, and I can remember hearing these voices that uh, were very curious to me. And, and the Orioles, like many stadiums, they had the, the broadcasters piped in to the concourse. So they were doing whatever they were doing, covering the, the rain delay. 
And then as the game finally got started, we would walk back around for a little while and get something to eat again or something to drink. And I could hear these voices, and I can vividly remember asking my uncle, what is that? Who are those people talking? And he goes, those are the announcers for the Orioles. Uh, and it was Chuck Thompson and Bill O'Donnell. And Baltimore, which has a wonderful tradition of excellent radio announcers and TV announcers for that matter, too, especially for baseball, it really intrigued me. Um, and I can remember the game vividly. I can remember that the, the game was tied at 2-2 two to two in the eighth inning, and Eddie Murray hit this line drive home run into the right field seats, and the scoreboard did this little explosion thing with the lights moving around. And that was thrilling, and the noise of the crowd I'm telling you, Rick, it, it just it jumped into my soul, that, that sound of the crowd roaring. Uh, it, you, know, you feel it in your chest. And uh, I can remember we listened to the, you know, the post-game show on the way home, uh, and I can remember just being uh, almost overwhelmed with uh, uh, just, just noise and sound and everything. It just jumped into me. And the way I look back at it is wh- whatever direction my life would have gone in, uh, and I have no idea what I, what I would have become. It hit a fork on the road that day, and and it it lurched me into uh, baseball, and I was fascinated with it, with the announcers. And from that point on, uh, I would listen to the game every day and every night. And it didn't matter what was going on. The the Orioles game and the broadcast of it is what became the focal point. And I am hundred percent positive that it drove my parents nuts because what had happened to their their son? He suddenly became obsessed with this. Uh, out of the day before, not even knowing what it existed. Uh, so I don't know if I have some weird personality quirk or whatever, but for whatever reason, it satisfied it uh, very intensely. And I instantly realized that I, I, I didn't want to be a player. I mean, I love playing baseball. I still enjoy it. We all do. But I wanted to be the guy on the radio because I felt so instantly connected to those people, even though I didn't know them, because um, it felt like you knew them. And I, and from then on, I would constantly I would lay on my bed with my eyes closed and listen to Chuck Thompson, Bill O'Donnell, and, and I felt like I knew them. And from that point in time, that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I played little league, and you know, my dad would hit me, you know, balls on the side of the house and all that stuff. But in my mind, while I loved playing, I was always thinking about ways to describe uh, the game, and that became kind of the, the the launching off point of what I do to this. I do the same thing now that I did as a kid. It's just now they give me a really nice paycheck for it. <laughs> Terrific story. Who'd they beat that day, the Baltimore Orioles? They beat the Milwaukee Brewers 3-2, uh, to two, and I can tell you that Mike Flanagan threw a complete game that day. And, and you know what, what I remember most about it is that the Orioles wore these bright orange uniforms. 70s baseball was just wonderful oh, yeah. for these uniforms, and they wore these bright, bright orange uniforms. And still have the scorecard from that day and um, I that, that, the scorecard from that game is maybe my most cherished possession in life outside of of course the real things like family and that was 1979 right yep and as it turned and out the Baltimore the Orioles really went, they went to the World Series they lost to uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates but nonetheless they went, yep they went to the World Series they won 102 games and they, uh, they beat the Angels in the playoffs. I can remember watching that over at my friend's house and just, uh, you know, jumping up and down and screaming and yelling when they won the pennant. And I can remember the World Series. I can, I can remember watching every game of that World Series as a kid. Uh, and I can remember when they, they were up three games to one, and everything that year had gone right for the Orioles. You know, it was one of those years where, you know, if, if they had a, 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 a funky bounce, it went their way. If it... You know, their pitching was great. Mike Flanagan had his career year. Eddie Murray was really bursting onto the scene. Ken Singleton had his best year at 35 home runs. And 
And to this day, I've talked to him about it. He still feels like he should have won the MVP that year. Uh, and everything went right in the World Series. They were up three games to one. And, mm. you know, baseball, it's an odd game. They suddenly just stopped hitting within the last three games of that series. And you could feel it slowly slipping away. And game seven happened, and I can remember watching it. You know, I look back, my parents let me stay up that late, you know, for, yeah. for, uh, for game seven. It was, a, it was a school night. It was, the, it was a middle, I think it was a Tuesday. And I can remember when the last out was made, uh, Pat Kelly flied out to Omar Moreno in center field, and the catch was made, and the Pirates were celebrating, and I, and I let out this hellacious, earth-shattering shriek uh, and started screaming and crying in, the, in our family room in the house. And I can remember my father was up, upstairs in the, in the bathroom. He was shaving. And I can remember him screaming, what is going on? What happened? He thought that, that there was something, you know, a blood-curdling scream comes from the family room, and he thought that somebody was being murdered downstairs. And uh, I can remember running over and looking up the stairs to him as he's shaving. You know, you, from our stairs, you could look right up into the, into the upstairs bathroom. It was like a powder room. And, uh, and him, him saying, what happened? I'm saying, they lost. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he's like, oh, for goodness sake, rah, 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 grumble, grumble, curse word, curse word, curse word. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the thing was, in the off season, you know, and, I, and it's funny, when you become a parent, you picture things, uh, what it must have been like for my parents. Uh, I suddenly became obsessed with it. I can remember all off-season long, off-season, all winter long, I guess, as if it was my off-season, elementary school kid. You know, all winter long, I kept saying, if they had just won one more game. Or I, I remember one day in the kitchen, we were having lunch with my mom, and I can remember exactly where I was standing, and I said, you know, if Pat Kelly had hit that fly ball just a little bit farther, maybe they could. I remember her saying, Andy, enough. Stop it. It's enough. You've got to let this go. And I was, I was so upset about it. I, I couldn't wait for the next season to begin. And, uh, you know, I, I look back and I'm like, God, it, I think it really freaked my parents out. But, hey, it became, it became a career, so it all worked out in the end. It sure did. And, uh, in fact, uh, you know, really, I guess the professional part of your career, where you're still a student um, and growing up outside of Baltimore, as you mentioned, you go to Townsend State University and that's when you started uh, covering uh, events for the uh, for the university radio station, right? WTMD. Yeah, I mean, t- to be honest, though, Rick, I really it kind of goes farther from that, and or earlier than that. When I after I started you know, really getting into baseball, I got very into you know broadcasting and the broadcast of it, and I would broadcast games from this from this board game that I found called Status Pro Baseball. You know, is before there was, you know, Atari or in television or, or any video game, you know, it was it was card games. It was like a Stratomatic sort of game, if you've heard of that, right. or APBA. Sure, this one was called This one was called Status Pro. It was made by the Avalon Hill Company. And um, it was really in-depth. I mean, you could learn a lot, actually, from it had single cards for every single player in the major leagues from that season. And I was able to get the, the, the game from the 1979 season. It was just the next year, so they, that's the one that they put out. And it set up a giant board, and you could set up your players, and it's, you, know, you had pawns that you'd move, and you, but you'd have individual stat cards for every player. So I could really set up you know, a, a, a cool thing in our, in our family room of, of a whole seasons of, of this thing. And I would get on my tape recorder, and I would broadcast it as if I was broadcasting something really important. You know, it was just 
I'm sitting there, you know, in, in the middle of my family room. My, my family's trying to, like, step over me to get into our kitchen, and I've got it all set up. And I'm, you know, shooting them looks, the looks that could kill if they accidentally nicked a card a certain way or, or moved a base where it shouldn't be. Um, and I would take these things very seriously, and I, w- and I would broadcast it in my mind like I was Chuck Thompson. Um, and I, I took it very seriously. And to be honest, I know this sounds strange. And I look back to it, and I think, God, it was odd. I really, honest to goodness, was looking at it as preparing for a career. Um, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and I had it all mapped out and played out very quickly the, in my head the way I wanted to, to go, all the way through high school, college, and into, into you know, Major League Baseball. And it's hard to believe that it actually played out that way, but I, I would, when I finally irritated my family enough where I was in the family room, they made me go into the basement. And we had a we had a really cool basement in in our house in Ellicott City, Maryland. And I would set up this board, and I would bring down my tape recorders. And I found there was a Steve Martin album, you know, a comedy album back when when comedians used to put out these these albums. And he had a segment of where he told a joke. And you remember Steve Martin was the hottest comedian going in in the seventies. Oh, yeah. And he had it told a joke. And there's about it must be a two or three or five minute segment where it's just crowd noise. It's people cheering. And for some reason on that album, if I ever met Steve Martin, I'd ask him, why did they dedicate such a large segment to just the crowd cheering? But for whatever reason, they did. And I took that little crowd cheering segment and I looped it onto another. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Their tape recorder. Uh, so it was this long, it must have been an hour-long thing of just cheering. And I set up another tape recorder and would use that as my crowd noise uh, during the game, uh, you know, this game that I'm, I'm playing. So I would stay up, and this sounds really bizarre, and it is. I'd stay up all night, and I would, I would play that game with the crowd cheering and, and playing it out, and I would raise and lower the crowd noise so it sounded like a real game, which it probably didn't, but in my head it did. Um, so that became kind of the beginning of, of figuring out how I wanted to do this and what I wanted to do. And then as we all grow older, you become free when you get a car. Uh, and I was able to get a job and, and get my car. So I would drive to Memorial Stadium. You know, and back then you could, you could go up to the ballpark and get a $3 ticket. Uh, so they had three, three buck night, they used to call it. Brought to you by Giant Food. Uh, and I would get a t- one ticket and go to the upper deck of Memorial Stadium and set up my board and broadcast the game into the tape recorder. And I'd have, you know, back then, you know how innocent things were. I would go with a, a giant, large grocery bag full of, of tapes and tape recorders and batteries and microphones and newspapers and stats and preparation for the game. And, you know, there was no security then. You could bring whatever you wanted into the ballpark. So I'd bring that. And you think you probably couldn't get half that stuff in a ballpark now. Uh, but I would get a ticket at the top of the top of the uh, upper deck, right behind home plate, and broadcast the game. So I would do that on a, a fairly regular basis. Uh, and there I was in my head. I was broadcasting Major League Baseball, and from there, 
Uh, I went to college to, to, as Towson, to Towson, as you mentioned, and I went there, and I'd like to think, I'd, you know, like them to think I went there just because of the academics, but really I went there because they had a, a, a big radio station. For college radio standards, it was really good size, and they ran it nicely, and they did all the sports. It was a 10,000-watt radio station, uh, so it covered most of Maryland, parts of Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Virginia. Uh, at the time, it was called WCVT, and uh, I went in there, and honest to goodness, it was like letting a, a, a caged dog loose. I mean, I, I wanted to do everything. I wanted to do news. I wanted to do DJing. I wanted to do sports. I wanted to do everything. And you know, and they're always looking for students that were willing to do it. So it was the perfect marriage. I was willing to do anything and everything, and they were looking for people to do it. So it was a wonderful training ground uh, to to learn how to broadcast and not just sports. Uh, but ultimately, sports is what I wanted to do, and, and Towson had a football program, and they had a basketball program, and you know, the one thing that they didn't have was, base, I mean, they had a baseball team, but there was no facility to broadcast the games. Uh, the beauty of it is that they had a wonderful internship relationship with uh, WBAL and the Orioles, so they ha- already had some interns for my freshman and sophomore year, but by the junior year, I was able to snag the internship, which got me to Memorial Stadium and Oriole Park at Camden Yards to do interviews with the Oriole players, but what I saw it as an opportunity in any sort of open booth that I could broadcast those games. And it was anything to get me a facility to do those games into my tape recorder. So that's what I did. I did that for for several years. And it was, uh, talk about a wonderful training ground uh, to learn how to do it. So you know, it's, when people ask me how long have you been doing this, in, in my head, honestly, it goes back to eight years old. I really haven't stopped doing it since. That's phenomenal. And you did, as you mentioned, a lot of the sports, you, and you covered uh, broadcast for Providence College and basketball and writer. Uh, you did basketball, football, college, New Jersey, um, some soccer for the Baltimore Spirit. Is there a sport that you haven't uh, covered that you would that you would like to uh, before your career is over say, well, I did that too? Well, I, I think in my mind I've done everything except hockey. Uh, I've even done boxing, believe it or not. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> I picked up a one-day boxing gig when I was actually still in college and I don't know if anyone on this planet ever saw it was for a guy that was that was uh, you know, looking to put together a, a boxing package that would be shown in local bars around Maryland and I, I don't even I don't it was before I was 21 I couldn't even drink it I couldn't even go into any of those bars somehow some way through some weird connection uh, and I would broadcast anything so he found me or I found him whatever it was and so I even did boxing and you know, football was fun. Basketball was great. You know, Towson had a really good basketball team. He went to the NCAA tournament twice. Uh, they, I did lacrosse. I didn't know the first thing about lacrosse. But, you know, it's, it's okay. You learn how to do it. You know, you, you envelop yourself in the rules of the game and talk to people that know something about it. You get a good analyst that can do that with you, and you can do the sport. Ultimately, sports are, are fairly simple. I mean, if, if, if you know how to broadcast, you can make anything sound interesting. Um, so I, I, the only thing that I really have never done is uh, is hockey, and you know I listen to Dave Mishkin and the passion that he has for it, and I I, I really um, uh, I love hearing the passion that he has for hockey. But I, I could probably do it to a degree, but never to the degree of someone that knows hockey, because Baltimore didn't have a hockey team. So that's really the one sport that that uh, that I don't know that well. Yeah, I think the names would probably be a little different to try to get used to as well. I mean, I, I'm amazed also at how he handles that. Um, in in uh, in nineteen in ninety two, you met uh, John Miller, of course, um, from ESPN and longtime 
uh, broadcaster, of course, uh, up there in, in, in Baltimore. What, what did he mean to your career? Chuck Thompson was really the, the first announcer that I, I completely fell in love with. But you know, he right. was in the later years of his career. Um, so he retired after the 1982 season. And uh, John Miller, who had, I mean, he had broadcast the Oakland A's when he was 22 in 1974. He had done the Rangers for a while, went to the Red Sox for a while for three years. And then they brought him in to, to basically replace Chuck Thompson in 1983. Um, at this point, I'm, I'm 11 and turning 12 years old, and I talk about, the, at least from my, my selfish standpoint, the right guy at the right time, because John was a young announcer that was enthusiastic, that was funny, that you, knew how to utilize his voice very well, uh, and he has a beautiful voice. Uh, he could very quickly connect with a listener. Uh, he has a remarkable skill at that. You know, John usually is on the air by himself. You know, he doesn't, you know, almost in a scully sort of a way where he, he has partners, but when he has the microphone, it, it feels like, just like Chuck Thompson, it felt like he was talking to me. Uh, and I'm sure every listener out there felt like he was talking directly to them. And it's a, it's a wonderful skill. I don't know. I wouldn't know how to explain to anyone how to do it. There's just kind of a knack for some of these guys that through the radio, it feels very personal. Uh, and then John was able, I felt like so connected to John right away when he got to Baltimore in 83 and I would write him letters uh, and, and just tell him how much I loved what he did over the, over the course of years. Um, and I, I got to say, you know, Joe Angel came to Baltimore and worked with him in 1988 and they were a wonderful pair. And I've told Joe this in, in recent days that, you know, the 1988, and we've been, I don't even know what the word is celebrating, but marking it was a year that the Orioles lost 21 games in a row to begin the year. And they were horrible. I think they won about 50, I think they were 54 and 107. But the broadcast that year with John and Joe were fantastic. Uh, and they would hook you in even though the team was terrible. And I, I told Joe this year, I said, you know, you, you laugh about that 1988 season you know, because it was such a nightmare. But I tell you what, I think that was some of the best broadcasting uh, of a baseball team that I think I've ever heard. Because how in the world do you make a team so miserable sound so interesting? Um, and they did that. I don't think I've ever told John that, and I hope I do one day, um, because they were great that year. And you know, John and Joe felt like they were, they were I mean, they, they put off the air at least, and I think they were really good friends, that they were almost like brothers. Um, and you felt like when you were listening to them uh, that you were listening to two guys that, that really loved talking about baseball, that really liked, you know, they'd laugh and they'd joke and they'd go off topic. And how could you not go off topic that year when the Orioles were so bad? Uh, but they were just interesting. They were interesting to listen to. They created beautiful theater of the mind. Um, and so ultimately, when I, be, you know, that internship I was telling you about, I got a chance to meet John uh, and Joe, for that matter. And they were wonderful to me. They could, they were exactly like I thought they would be. They were engaging and they were warm and they were friendly. Um, you know, now that I think about it, before I was an intern, one day I was at a game with my tape recorder uh, when I was probably about sixteen and waited outside the press box and waited for them to come out. And, uh, you know, they, they've got families and they've got people to go home to, and they both put down their briefcases and they both stood and talked to me for a while, and they couldn't have been nicer. Um, and when I got a chance to, to meet them, and especially John, who I was really into, um, it, it, was, uh, it, it was just such a, a wonderful thing to realize. It, it made it feel like it was something maybe I could do one day, because... You meet them and you realize they're just they're just guys. They're just 
the guys that love baseball. And I, and that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, and John took a really, really nice interest in my career when he didn't have to. You know, when I became an intern there, uh, I would, would broadcast the games into my tape recorder, and then uh, John would say, let me hear what you're doing. You know, he didn't have to do any of that. Uh, but John has a real love for broadcasting baseball, and he'd say, let me have your tape. Let me hear what you're doing. Uh, and there would be times that we would sit in a ballpark, Memorial Stadium, where it was ultimately Camden Yards by this point when I got to know him much better, and he would sit and critique my tape. I'd set up the tape recorder, and he'd listen to it, and he'd listen to it seriously, like a, like a teacher going, you know, like a, like a teacher with a red pen. You know, he would say, you know, why did you say this that way? You know, you, instead of over-describing there, you could have used maybe three or four words instead of the, all those sentences there. You could be more concise at that point. Or maybe you could elaborate more at this point and really go over it intensely. Uh, and I'll always be forever thankful and grateful that, uh, that he did that. I can remember one day when it was pouring down rain outside the ballpark. And, I, you know, he had a nice closed parking spot, but I was parked over at, like, Harbor Place or somewhere all the way down the road in, in Baltimore. And he goes, hey, I'll, I'll give you a ride to your car. And that, to me, was almost just like, it was like validation. Like, God, he, he recognizes me. He sees me. You know, anybody that meets their idols, they always say don't meet your idols because they can disappoint you. It wasn't that way at all with sure. John. It, he became uh, even larger than what he was on the radio and getting a chance to know him. And I, I remember saying to him at the time, you know, I was reading this book called Voices of the Game uh, by Kurt Smith, and I can remember uh, reading about Mel Allen and Red Barber and, and the, the really great initial broadcasters that, that made it an art form. And I remember saying to John one time, I said, I swear, I, I feel like I'm, I'm like in the car with Mel Allen. You know, <laughs> and he goes, and he started laughing. And, uh, but I did. That's exactly how I felt. I felt like I was there with one of the masters, and, uh, and he, was, he was so nice to me. And um, I'll, I'll forever be thankful. And uh, I, I, how many words can I say to the, to the time? He, he has four kids, and I'm sure they were waiting for him to get home, and he was giving <laughs> time to me. I mean, who the heck am I? And uh, I think he re- I look back now, and I think he recognized that I was, I was genuine and serious and wanted to be better at it. And, uh, and I, I'll always be... I always remember that to this day when minor league announcers are in touch with me uh, or when I was in the minor leagues, younger minor league announcers would be in touch with me because I think at the time he gave me, the, the least I could do would be to hopefully pay it forward a bit to the next generation. Yeah, and you've always you've always done that. And so then did your, um, as far as your baseball broadcasting, um, you know, professional career then begin in the Florida State League with St. Lucie? It did. Uh, after I graduated Towson, um, I, I didn't know what to do, so I, you know, I, I pulled together my money and I flew to Atlanta, where the uh, baseball winter meetings were, and that was the only. Th- I mean, I, there was no path. I mean, I, I didn't know exactly how to do it. Uh, I right. knew what I wanted to do, but I, I'm like, how do I get a, 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 the attention of people that might be doing hiring? So I, I, I don't remember who told me about the baseball winter meetings, but I kind of thought on my own, maybe that's a place to go. Uh, so I did. I, I went by myself. And um, I went to the Omni, I think it was, the Omni Hilton, maybe it was, in, in Atlanta, and just started peddling my, my tape. And, you know, I put together a decent tape because of all the time I had at uh, what was then Cam, you know, what became Camden Yards. So I had a, a decent-sounding tape that, uh, that had real crowd noise and real Major League players in it, um, and I passed the tape around to anybody and everybody. Uh, I can remember... Hi, this sounds really creepy, but I, I would. I would hide around like the corner 
in the hotel as I'm, you know, kind of walking around the lobby, and I'd see a general manager for minor league team, and I'd pretend like, oh, you know, I bumped into him. Hell, hey, how you doing? You know, I've, I've heard of your name before. You're this guy. I remember one guy that was really nice to me, and I, I can't remember his name, but he's the general manager of the Omaha Royals. And I'm embarrassed I can't remember his name right now. But I pretended, oh, I just bumped into him, but I knew who he was. And I, you know, <laughs> shook his hand and gave him my tape and, you know, all these weird things that, that we do when we're trying to get jobs. And he was wonderful. And, and so many of the general managers gave me a couple minutes of their time and said, hey, send me your tape. We don't have any openings, but, but hey, send it along. And um, I'll say the one thing that, that I am proud of. If the, the one thing that I will do uh, and pat myself on the back is I was persistent, um, and, and I, I, I handled myself in a professional manner. And, I, and I, I would always follow up these conversations with a note, just a little handwritten thank you note. Hey, thanks for taking a couple minutes. I appreciate that. And I do think, looking back, that that did get my name around the minor leagues a little bit. Um, ultimately, I, um, I got a job in single-A ball with, with the St. Lucie Mets, and the man that was doing the hiring – it was a husband and wife team, Greg Wyatt, who, if you look back, was one of the original seven anchors at ESPN. He was there before Chris Berman got there. Really? Um, wow. And he was. He was one of, Berman, most people think he was one of the original seven, but he wasn't. It was Greg, and it was Lou Palmer, and it was Tom Mees, and Bob Lee, and, and, and some other true originals. Um, and Greg was one of those seven that really uh, got ESPN off the ground. Uh, George Grand was another one, if you remember that initial... Uh, spot of him on ESPN. Well, Greg at that point had retired from being on the air, and he uh, started a radio station with his wife, WPSL 1590 in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Uh, and they were looking for an announcer to, to broadcast the St. Lucie Mets. And they had gotten, he told me later, about 200 tapes, uh, some of which from that winter meetings, and, uh, and hired me. I ended up getting the gig. And uh, it, it was like a continuation in many ways of, uh, of what I did at Towson. You know, if you're a small radio station, you know, that station is 60 watts at night. I, that's, I'm not saying that wrong. That is 60 watts. Six zero. Wow. <laughs> Six zero. So, I mean, you're maybe broadcasting to who knows, whoever's in actual Port St. Louis, it wouldn't even get up to Fort Pierce. It wouldn't even get up to Vero <laughs> or it wouldn't even get down to West Palm. I mean, it wouldn't even get to Jupiter. It was just Port St. Lucie. Um, but I took it as if I had a national gig, man, and 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 they allowed me to do everything. I ho- you know did news and I did swap shop and and uh, all sorts of stuff. They gave me fertile ground to learn how to be a broadcaster. And uh, and uh, to this, I mean, Greg and Carol are like my parents um, because I moved away and it was hard personally. It was very lonely, um, but professional. I just jumped into the to the radio gig and. Uh, it, it was great. And the, the only way, Rick, and, and you know this, and anyone knows this in broadcasting, the only way to get better at it is to just do it. You just do it over and over and over. And, and I, I'd listen to my tapes, and I'd like this one, and I'd hate this one. And, you know, it, it, repetition does amazing things to the human condition. You know, if you do something over and over again, you naturally, you almost can't help but get better at it. And, um, and I worked for them for a couple of years, and then I, I realized that A-ball, I had had enough of A-ball, and I wanted to move up, and uh, got the job in Trenton. And that, you know, we were talking about it earlier, that's where everything in many ways in my mind took off, because I got to a larger 
stage and met my wife, and uh, and it's really just kind of ballooned a little bit from there. That was part one of our interview with Andy Freed. We'll have more coming up in the next few days, including uh, his memories of some of the 08 season and, and the Rays, kind of uh, the young kids from 05, 06, 07 developing into that team. You're going to hear uh, his love of 70s baseball. And when I tell you, Andy Freed watches a lot of 1970s baseball on YouTube and watches the same games over and over again. He binge-watches it, I think. I believe last week he was watching the 79 World Series once again. That's a passion of Andy's. He truly is a, a big baseball fan um, and a great play-by-play guy and a good guy, too. So we'll have more of that coming up. Meanwhile, the Lightning made qualifying offers to four players on Monday. Cedric Paquette, J.T. Miller, Slater Cuckoo, and Adam Ernie. That was all their restricted free agents that they have on the, the, the NHL roster. There was a... Uh, uh, AHL player Matt Gallant who was not offered a qualifying offer what a qualifying offer means for these players is they now in the terms were not disclosed to what the qualifying offer was but if these players get a offer from another team the Lightning have the right to match that offer or if they don't match it and the player signs with that team then they'll get draft pick compensation back it varies depending on the size of the contract and the length of the contract so there's a formula for that as far as how much how much you get back on a qualifying offer. So odds are those four players will be back with the lightning or signed by the lightning this season. Again, that's Cedric Paquette, JT Miller, Slater Cuckoo, and Adam Ernie. USF gave an update on their AD search on Monday. They said they hope to have a hire by July 4th, which is next week. Uh, They've narrowed it down to a few candidates. Uh, None of them have been to campus yet, but they're looking for candidates with experience, uh, local ties, and someone with integrity. So uh, the question about Tom, Matt Baker asked about Tom Jurich, who is a, the former athletic director at Louisville, who has a place here in Clearwater. And uh, Sutton, the head of the search committee, would not give an update on specific candidates or comment on that. So, so news about who the USF will hire as their next athletic director should come within the next week. The Rays will be at the Trop again today at 1210. Nathan Navaldi going against Max Scherzer. Should be a good matchup at Tropicana Field before the Rays have Wednesday off. And as far as the Bucks go, no news on Jameis Winston and the reported suspension of three games or possibly more, as we've talked about for the last few weeks. And then the reports came out last Thursday and Friday about that. So no news on Monday as far as that goes. Nothing official yet from the NFL and no comments from anybody else, including Jameis or his side or the NFL. So uh, we appreciate you guys listening to Sports Day Tampa Bay. Rick Stroud, of course, is on vacation. I'm Steve Versnick filling in. Uh, we'd like it if you could uh, rate and review this podcast wherever you get it, whether it's iTunes or Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio. You can always subscribe right there so it's automatically downloaded to your computer or mobile device uh, every day automatically so you don't even have to think about it. And you can listen to it anytime you'd like, including offline if you're in an area you don't have cell service on an airplane, etc. And if you could uh, leave comments on there, that really helps us, or share this with friends. Uh, tell them about that as well. You can reach us at SportsDayTV on Twitter, or you can reach Rick Stroud at NFL Stroud. And until uh, Wednesday, have a great day, everybody. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. 
dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. 